Let me, let me start off by saying Happy Mother's Day. I didn't, didn't say that earlier, but uh, Valerie got greeted by Mother's Day this morning with this reminder of the high calling of motherhood. Um, she'd been out of town. She went to Austin this, this past week. We had uh, what seems to be hopefully the end of, a, of an endless stream of birthdays. And so I have nephews that are six and eight, born on the same day, and so luckily we celebrate their birthdays on the same day. They live in Austin, so she drove down there, drove back up last night. Told me last night, she's like, man, I slept great. It was a great night. I went in to get Graham this morning, and he had gotten sick in his bed. And so I said, happy Mother's Day. (laughs) As I'm working to stem the reflex and so that was, that was my, my deed and, and, and really telling her Happy Mother's Day. And she, she told me, she said, I don't know that this will be the worst Mother's Day I ever had, but let's just hope that this will be the worst one I ever had. That has nothing to do with the text this morning. That's just, Valerie hasn't been here in three weeks because we were out of town. She was working in the nursery. And so I'm sure in some of you are like, what happened? She got a really bad hair. Um, you know, she's waiting for it to come out, the wig to come in. None of those things. Um, Wow, let's not record that. <laughs> I've really got to go back to scripting this. No. Anyway, so today we finish out Second Timothy. And so it, it's one of these things where uh, when we first start a letter and I open it up and I'm, I'm pouring through and trying to figure out how different people have broken these things out, how I want to break it out. And so I'm looking at clause structure and all these things that would really put you to sleep if I continued to talk about them. But as, as I'm looking through this, there's this excitement on the front end, because man, there's some great stuff, and I just can't wait to talk to you guys about it. But as we come to the end, I am always sad to say goodbye to the letter, and, and that's what we have to do today. We are leaving Second Timothy. We'll finish it today. But Paul leaves us w- with a bang. Paul leaves us with... with this great message that we all need to hear. And, and in some ways, it's how to finish well, but in others, he's mixing in all of these things that he's imparting to Timothy. You'll remember that, that Paul is, in essence, handing over his ministry to Timothy. He's calling him to Rome, where Paul is awaiting sentences, sentencing. He's awaiting uh, the end of his life. The church history and tradition tells us that Paul was beheaded And so this happened some period before that. Paul is calling Timothy. He wants to offer some final instruction to him. Let me read 16 through 22. We're going to spend the lion's share of our time in 16 through 18, and then just this little tag on the end of 22. But let me read the text for us this morning. Paul says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. So that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And he runs through this list of just parting words here, 19 through 22. He says, Greet Prissa and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth. And I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens, Linus, and Claudia, and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit, grace, 
be with you. Now, what Paul is talking about here in verse 16, he says, Look, at my first offense, no one came to stand by me. So we recognize that when we went through Philippians, Paul is writing from, a, from an apartment, basically, from this Roman prison cell, but it's a decidedly different imprisonment that he faces here in his second imprisonment. And so Paul writes, uh, in that one he talks about how visitors have come in and how he's been able to continue the ministry there. He's meeting with people in that apartment. But here, in his second imprisonment, it's decidedly different. Paul, as tradition tells us, is in maritime prison. He's in a hole in the ground in a miserable set of circumstances. He's awaiting his death. There's, there's no visitors uh, like there were during his first imprisonment. It is an awful existence. And at some point in that process, in that imprisonment, Paul went before a Roman tribunal and they allowed him, in essence, to make a statement, to offer a defense, to say a word for his own case. And that's what Paul is describing here. Now, th- the interesting thing is Paul has been surrounded by people. If you read through Acts, it's, it's Luke's account largely of, of the travels, of the spread of the gospel, and a lot of it is Paul traveling around with Luke. And these guys are in some way inseparable. But when Paul writes here, we see him totally alone, all by himself. All the people that had stood by him, all the people that had been an encouragement to him, when it came time to stand in front of this tribunal, when it came time to to stand and give a defense, he looked to his left, he looked to his right, and nobody was there. He was totally alone. He'd been abandoned. Paul says here, he says, all had deserted me. It's terrifying. Terrifying. It's the end of his life. If Paul needed people, he needed people at that moment. But nobody was there. I think Paul goes in, he's got to give the most persuasive speech of his life. He's got to give the most eloquent exposition of the gospel in front of the most hostile audience he's ever addressed. And who's there to support him? Nobody. Nobody's there. They've all abandoned him. They've all deserted him. When we were living in the Czech Republic, it was really, uh, it was just kind of a cultural practice whenever you'd ask somebody to come over to your house or go do something, it'd say, absolutely, we will be there. But they'd say it in Czech, and I would just nod, pretend like I knew what they said. But they would, they would automatically agree to come to these things. They would say, oh, yes, we would love it. We will be there. Thank you so much. It is a great honor. And then two minutes after it started, you get a text message. And it would say, I am so sorry. My regrets. I can't make it. And so whenever we would ask people, we'd say, hey, look. Look, we're going to have this deal at our house. Valerie's going to cook food. I want to buy food you're not going to eat. And so are you going to come? And they'd say, oh, Matt. Um, actually, they called me math. It was really awkward. But they'd say, oh, math. Uh, we will absolutely be there. And after the second or third time of getting that text message, then I really start saying, okay, look, you're not going to hurt my feelings. I want to know if you're going to be there. And they'd say, well, you know, I really want to. I say, I understand that. Let me go back. You are not going to hurt my feelings. You're not going to hurt Valerie's feelings. 
I don't want to cook food. We don't have freezer space. I don't want to cook food that nobody's going to show up for. And they'd say, oh, well, you know, I will try. Which I just, I took that to mean they weren't going to be there. But what we see here for Paul isn't that he's invited people to come and, and they don't show. What we see is that there are people that should be there. They absolutely should be there. This isn't a dinner party they can blow off. This isn't a casual get-together for coffee that they cannot make. This is Paul giving a defense for his life, and when he looks around, nobody's there. But he doesn't get angry. He doesn't get upset. He, he doesn't take this as an opportunity. And keep in mind, these are the last words that we have written by Paul. And so forever after in history, he could have labeled them and be like, well, you remember <clears throat> Luke, the guy that's writing this letter, was supposed to be there, but he fell asleep. And forever after, for 2,000 years, we'd remember Luke, the one who slept through the trial. You know, we don't see Paul run through this list. Instead, we see this decidedly gracious. We see him be decidedly forgiving. Look what he writes. In talking about all those who deserted him, he says, may it not be charged against them. Man, that is gracious. I think over the times this past week, I was wronged. Somebody did something against me. Think over this past week and the time somebody has wronged you, done something against you in recent, in recent history. Did you have the same response of Paul? Or did instead, did you get out your little book and you're adding up their offenses? You're adding up all the things they did wrong. Because you are absolutely counting it against them. You're absolutely adding up all these things. You know, the amazing thing is we look at this, we see that all deserted Paul, and Paul's response to that is, may it not be charged against them. And we say, all they did was not show up. But what I want you to see is the similarity. Look back at 4.10. Paul, as he began this section, said in 4.10, he said, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Demas did the exact same thing. But the difficulty is, since I've taught this in two sections, you see Demas and what he did, and he deserted, right? And Paul gives us the reason. He said he was in love with his present age. Couldn't handle it. So he went to Thessalonica. We don't know what he did there. The, the generous way is to think that he went to Thessalonica where ministry was easier. He wanted to go get involved in the church there. All we know is that he deserted. Now, when it comes to these others in 4.16, Paul says, everybody, what? Everybody deserted me. Everybody did the exact same thing that Demas did. Doesn't give a reason. Doesn't give a reason. For all the different words Paul could have used for desertion, for abandonment, he chose to use the same word for Demas that he did for this group. This is what Paul's doing. Everybody knew Demas. Everybody had heard accounts of why he left. But what Paul wants to do is pair together the leaving of Demas with this group and say, may it not be charged against them. For Demas was the temptation to choose the world over Christ, but for this group, they effectually did the same thing. You see, to be there for Paul, for them to have gone in to, to, to face this trial with him, it would be an endorsement of Paul. 
Because they would have been arguing for his defense. They could have stood beside him and, and had solidarity and said, we are with Paul. And they say, the treasonous one? And they're like, well, that's not how we like to call him. And they say, look, we are with Paul. And they're like, the one that, that thinks there's another God other than the emperor? And they're like, well. And so they desert him. Do you see how, in, in, in essence, Paul is making a statement that these have done the same thing that Demas did? Too often. Too often our recourse is, is to shoot the injured. Too often the path we follow is to find those who are struggling and to say, you know what, away with you. Man, I, I, I don't have time with you. We, we blast them privately to our friends and then they take that message and they spread it publicly to everybody else. Paul gives us this pattern for what it is to show grace to those people that fail us. Paul gives us this wonderful pattern. You know, they couldn't have failed Paul in a more public way. They couldn't have failed Paul in a more pivotal time. But Paul's response to their failure is don't charge it against them. Paul gives us this beautiful picture of what it is to be gracious to those that fail us. Now this is the amazing thing. Paul in 16 and 17, he contrasts the support of men with the support of God. He says, when I, when I looked around and I looked for somebody to stand beside me, to support me, to be an encouragement to me, I saw nobody. I was, I was there by myself. I had only people that were antagonistic to me, facing me, casting things at me. But this is the good news. He says, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Now, for, for Paul to say that God stood by him and strengthened him likely conjures in his mind something decidedly different than it does in, in yours and mine. So you can probably think of experiences in your life where things were really tough. You were, you were down and, and, and beaten. You were discouraged. It wasn't going well with your spouse. It wasn't going well at school. It wasn't going well at work. There are a variety of things, times and places that you and I can think of that life really stunk. Right? You watch a movie, you feel like you're escaping. Movie ends, you're like, my life is still terrible. My life is still terrible. Paul writes here, he says, in the midst of the situation, he recognized that Christ was strengthening him, that he was standing beside him. Now, Paul writes about this, or we have Luke writing about Paul in the book of Acts. In Acts 21, starting, verse, starting in chapter 21, Luke recounts Paul's trip back to Jerusalem. And it is short and it is painful. And it ultimately leads to Rome. Paul goes back to Jerusalem. He visits with James in verse 17. They hang out for a little bit. Paul goes to the temple and people see him and they are all kinds of upset. They hate him. They want his blood. They want Paul to suffer. And for what reason? We read that, that the men are crying out and saying, men of Israel, help. This is the one who is teaching everyone everywhere. The, the charge against Paul, the reason they're upset with him, is because he's a loudmouth for the gospel. Paul goes into a town, he walks into the temple, and he says, let me tell you where you boys have gotten it right, let me tell you where you boys have gotten it wrong. 
Jesus loves you. He's the fulfillment of Isaiah. He's the one in Psalm 2. He's the one in Psalm 22. Jesus came to save sinners, of which I'm foremost. And they said, whoo, Paul. This can't be right. You're telling us we're all wrong and you're right, Paul says. So you did hear me. You, You did understand. And so Paul goes over, and this is what we see here in Acts, that he goes back over his transformation of the gospel. He says, you guys know me. You know I hated Christians. And they're like, well, that was a little bit ago. You've changed. I thought it was the hair, but come to find out it's not. Paul, yes, we know you. And so he goes back over this transformation experience. He says, look, you remember that I was walking on the road and this light shone and and, and I saw Jesus and he told me to rise and to continue on into Damascus. And he says, look, and then this guy Ananias came and he, he told me that I needed to believe and be baptized. They explained to me the, the full weight of the gospel. All of these things got laid out for me. And since that time, I'm an itinerant preacher. I travel to towns near and far to spread the gospel. And they said, oh, we remember all right. So they took Paul And they beat him. They beat him so bad and so many people took part that the Romans found out about it. And so they sent a group of men to grab Paul and they said, look, we can't have somebody beaten to death here in the city streets. And so they pulled him back and they rescued him. And Paul says, would you mind if I go out again and give this another shot? And so they they let Paul go back out, and he tells them the story again. He talks to them about it again. Well, they don't like that. They get really upset, and they want to beat him again. So the Romans take him, and they say, look, we will fix this. We're very good at beating people. We'll beat him for you. So they stretch him out on the rack. They get ready to beat him. And, And Paul, bloody, bruised, probably some broken bones, looks back over his shoulder and says, is this any way to treat a Roman citizen? The guy says, well, as a matter of fact, no. You're not a Roman citizen, are you? Paul says, well, as a matter of fact, yes. And things begin to change. Paul appeals. He wants to go see Caesar. But look at this. In chapter 23 and verse 11, Paul is bloodied, broken, and beaten. And starting in verse 11, it says, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So you see what happens? Paul writing here at the end of 2 Timothy says, The Lord stood by me and strengthened me. What Paul is making reference to is the fact that God stood by him bodily, spoke to him audibly in Jerusalem. And he came to Paul who had been abused, Paul whose body was near the point of giving out, and he said, Take courage. Take courage. Friends, if Jesus ever stands beside me, I look over, I see him, and he says to me, Take courage. That's about the only thing I can do, right? I mean, that's, that's transformative to so every encounter Paul goes through, whether he's shipwrecked, whether he's beaten, whether he's hungry. When he's suffering in that prison, this thought comes back to him. 
He's got this Kodak moment in his mind of the risen Lord standing beside him, looking at him and saying, take courage. I've got a trajectory for your life. I've got a course and a pattern you cannot mess up. You cannot deviate from. You're going to Rome and you're going to testify about me there. So Paul stands before the tribunal. Looks to his left, looks to his right, looks to the crowd. Nobody's there that he knows. No friendly faces. But he recognizes the presence of God, which reminded him in Acts 23, 11, to take courage, stands by him still, and is offering and extending strength to him. Now this is what that looks like. Paul stands, his knees don't shake. Paul speaks, his voice doesn't quiver. It doesn't waver. He's strong in his delivery, not because he's an eloquent speaker. Not because he's so bold and courageous. He's able to stand because God's abiding presence is beside him, inside him, all around him. He is living a life commissioned and directed by God. So this is what he writes. He says, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Now, the interesting thing is Paul has used this same phraseology over and over again. In 1 Timothy 1.12, he talked about the beginning of his ministry. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Paul looks back to this Damascus Road experience. He sees Jesus coming into his life. He sees the strengthening of Jesus that has preserved him day in and day out, that preserves him still. And then here at the end, he has this same comment. He says, look, the Lord is strengthening me. Christ is strengthening me. Now, the interesting thing is that he's had the same thing to say to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 2, 1, speaking to Timothy, and you'll recognize that Paul has repeatedly called Timothy into suffering. He's called him to join in his suffering. He's called him to join in his tribulation, in his beatings, in his persecution. That's why in 2 Timothy 2.1, he says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. See, Paul wants him to understand exactly what it is that Timothy is called to, takes courage. And how Timothy will make it, how he will abide by it. It's not by escaping danger. It's not by being safe, but it's by having a full reliance on God, by fully trusting God, by fully expecting and praying and requesting by the strengthening of Jesus to come into his life. And so whenever we go through difficult things and trials, it's, it's not you in, in, in all of your eloquence, it's not you in all of your intelligence thinking, how can I wield this? How can I protect myself best? See, Paul gives us this beautiful model here to follow. We're not strengthened and encouraged even though we might be surrounded by a multitude of friends and family. Our strengthening can only come from one place. And that's Christ, and that's Christ alone. Now the interesting thing is Paul gives us exactly why Jesus strengthened him. He says it is so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed. He says it so that the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. 
And it, so, because of this, I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Now, Paul has really stayed on message with this same idea over and over again. We see that this message in, first, in 2 Timothy 1, starting in verse 11, Paul says, For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. This is why I suffer as I do. This is why I suffer as I do. Paul saw the proclamation of the gospel, that Jesus Christ came to die in the place of sinners, that there is forgiveness in him. Paul saw his following and his suffering going hand in hand. The reason Jesus strengthened him is because Paul's suffering wasn't done yet. And the reason Jesus strengthened him is because not everyone had heard the message who was supposed to hear it. The reason Christ strengthened him in that, min- in that minute, in that moment, is so that the full complement of Gentiles might hear the gospel. See, man, that's been the, the tenor of Paul's life the whole time. That's been the tenor and the nature and the calling of Paul's life the whole time. Paul suffered not so that people would come to know him and know how great he is. So we might have seminars and talk about the suffering of Paul and and how we all need to live lives like Paul, but Christ strengthened him so that the gospel might continue to spread. And the difficult thing is, when we get in the midst of difficulties and the midst of problems, our prayer typically is God make it stop. I don't want to suffer anymore. I don't want to be uncomfortable anymore. And there's a place for that. There's absolutely a place for that. But look where Paul's first focus is. His first focus is on God and his renown. Paul is so preoccupied with reaching lost sinners with the message of the gospel that he recognizes that his suffering is going to have to happen. And there is a time and a place to ask for God's healing, to ask for God's provision, his care, that he might remove you from that set of circumstances, but the prayer needs to originate and ask, God, how can I endure this situation for your glory? God, how in this this moment of suffering can I reach someone with the gospel? God, you recognize it's my desire not to go through this. Man, none of us want to go through sufferings. None of us want to to endure these awful things. Paul's focus is always at the dissemination of the gospel. And so should be ours. Now, Paul writes and he describes what this is like. And he says that My goal, my job is to proclaim the gospel and it is for this reason that I was rescued from the lion's mouth. See, Paul, in some sense, is channeling Psalm 22. Psalm 22 and verse 21, the psalmist cries out and says, save me from the mouth of the lion. Save me from the mouth of the lion. Paul is is asking, in some sense, that, that he not die. And why not? Because he needs to continue in his message. He needs to meet with Timothy one more time. You recognize he has recalled Timothy. Timothy is on his way to Rome. Luke is there with him. Other people are there with him. Paul doesn't feel that his ministry has ended. He still has men and women to pour into. Not because he wants to have one great memory with them. 
Not because he wants to get them together on his deathbed and say, I was always disappointed in you, Trophimus. And it's not this Godfather type moment where he's, where he's lining people up and says, Look, I've got five horse heads stashed in five very conspicuous locations. Ah. It's not that. Paul's focus is always on the gospel. Paul's focus is always on its dissemination. He's not wielding out judgment. In fact, we see completely the opposite. Paul doesn't want these things charged to those who deserted him because he knows it's necessary for the expansion of the gospel that they be brought in, that they be the ones entrusted to it, that they be the ones carrying it further. See, Paul's not looking to shoot the injured. He's looking to redeem them. So he says, look, God rescued me from the lion's mouth. He didn't allow me to be executed that day because he knew that my ministry needed to continue. I needed to have one last visit with Timothy so that I might impart further instruction to him so that Timothy could continue this ministry in Rome. That's why God rescued him from the lion's mouth. That's why he saved him. And look at 18. Paul writes, he says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Lest anyone look at this and say, look, God saved Paul because of what a great guy Paul is. Or God's not going to allow anything bad to happen to Paul anymore. Paul says, no, look, he saved me, but he is rescuing me and bringing me, not out of this prison, but into his heavenly kingdom. Paul doesn't want them to be upset. He doesn't want them to be dismayed. He still recognizes he will die in Roman imprisonment. Tradition tells us he'll be beheaded. But that can't interrupt the flow, the pattern, the purpose of God. God is rescuing Paul from every evil deed. He is redeeming the evil works of men for his purpose. And he's ultimately going to bring Paul into his heavenly kingdom. And this is the amazing thing about this. If If anybody has a right to be bitter, it's Paul. To pour your whole life into someone, to pour your whole life into a group of men and women, and to have none of them be there for you at your time of need. It's got to be the height of disappointment. It's got to be a crushing blow. He recognizes that Jesus stood by him. Recognized that that, that God is the one who's delivering him, who is rescuing him. And he he steps back from this. He steps back and, and he gets this perspective. And look at the praise he offers. Look at the praise he offers. He says, To him be the glory forever and ever. Paul looks at his beatings. He looks at his body. He feels the ache. He feels the hunger. He feels the, the sadness of lost people he's met with that refuse to, to hear, to surrender. He thinks of Demas who left because he loved the world. He thinks of everybody else who deserted him for a myriad of reasons. He thinks on all the things God has allowed him to endure, the the, the sufferings untold. He reflects on his life. There's not an ounce of bitterness. There's this great doxological praise 
where he says to him be glory forever and ever. See, Paul, by the way he lived his life, by the way he ended his life, is setting a tone. He's setting a tone for how to suffer. He's setting a tone for how to be disappointed. He's setting a tone for how to restore men and women who fail you. He's setting a tone for how to lead well. He's setting a tone for how to serve well. And he's setting a tone for how to die well, how to leave well. And that tone is nothing other than the praise and adoration of God. See, Paul looks at this. He looks at all these things that have transpired around him. He says, this is how I respond. I worship God in the midst of it. I worship God at the beginning of it, in the middle of it, and I worship God at the end of it. Here at the end of Paul's life, if anybody deserves to be bitter, it's him. And instead, he cries out, glory to God forever. And let's just look at this last bit. Paul runs through some greetings. But he gets to the very end after continuing the instructions to Timothy and reminding him that he needs to get there before winter. He does this really amazing thing. Recognize that most of the letters in the New Testament are written to a group of people, right? But we see in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy that Timothy is set there. He is the pastor of this church in Ephesus. And so there are things that are to Timothy and there are things that are to the group, Okay? This is what we see, and some of your Bibles have this as a footnote. He addresses both in the final verse. To Timothy, we can see this because the you there is singular. To Timothy, he says, the Lord be with your spirit. And to the church at large, he says, grace be with you. He uses the plural you. Paul wasn't from the south. If he were, he would have said y'all. The writers of the ESV aren't from the South. They could have helped us out by putting in parentheses, y'all. But it is the English standard version. So Paul looks at Timothy. This guy that he's invited to suffer with him, this guy that he has told that Jesus is worth it. That Jesus is worth suffering for. So he looks at Timothy. He knows Timothy needs an increase of the abiding presence of Jesus in his spirit, in his flesh, day by day, moment by moment. So Paul looks at Timothy, who's about to take a tremendous weight upon his shoulders. He looks at Timothy, who's about to take the head of an organization that he probably hasn't even begun to be able to wrap his mind around how profound the endeavor is. Paul, full of grace, full of love, writes and says, the Lord be with your spirit. Just as badly as Timothy needed the abiding presence of, of Christ in his life, so too you and I do. I mean, our generation is headed more and more of this reflection of what it is to live in the first century. In the first century, the Christians lived and they had a government that was hostile to their existence, that sought to limit their freedoms, that sought to limit their expression of religion because they didn't want them upsetting the cultural norms. They saw Christianity and all other faiths 
as a possible destabilizing influence. Paul knew that Timothy's life would likely be asked of him. And he knew that Timothy needed a reminder to remember Jesus. The exact same thing that Paul had told him in chapter 2 and verse 8 when he said, remember Jesus Christ. Timothy's remembering Jesus. And Paul's prayer is that Jesus would come in and would continue to abide in Timothy's life. Man, that that would be our prayer. That we would be, be a people who would recognize our need for Jesus. That we don't just look back at our salvation and say, you know, I've got Jesus taken care of. He's, Ephesians tells me he, he's in me. But we would be a people who that wake up in the morning and we would say, Jesus, be with me today. That we would be a people who love one another and, and would cry out and say, Jesus, be with Larry. Jesus, be with Julie. Jesus, be with Jim. Jesus, be with Steve. Paul gives us a pattern for how to care, for how to love one another. Gets to the end of his life and he cries out, Jesus, be with Timothy. Then he turns to the church at large and he says, grace be with you all. May the riches of God at Christ's expense be with you all. May you all be steadily reminded that God's grace rests on you. What a great reminder. See, there's something so completely amazing about grace. It's accomplished in you, not because of who you are, not because of how lovable you are, no matter what your mother thinks of you. Grace was accomplished for you through the death of God's Son, Jesus Christ. It's inexhaustible. You can never use up grace. But it's not cheap. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, writing in a, in a, in a Roman, pri- or Roman prison cell, that would have been weird, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, writing in a Nazi prison cell, awaiting his execution, wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And Bonhoeffer said that for a Christian to do anything other than surrender their lives 100% to Jesus is to cheapen grace. A crass way to put it is, is to do anything other then offer 100% of yourselves to Jesus is to look at his blood, to spit on it, and say, I'm more important than his blood. And as a Christian, we just can't do that. Because to be a Christian is to be one so completely identified with the blood of Jesus that we look not only we look not to ourselves, but we look to others. We look not to ourselves, but we look to Him, and our cry is, "Lord Jesus, how can I serve You? Lord Jesus, how can I make You known?" Paul, one who had put to death Christians, one who had called for the murder of innocents, was one who knew the depths of grace. Grace that could come in and and fill all voids in his life. Grace that could overcome egregious sin 
Grace that could forgive him. Grace that could completely transform who he is. So he has this beautiful recognition that Christ died to save the worst sinners and Paul was the foremost. I pray that our prayer would be that God's abiding presence would make us keenly aware of the sacrifice of his son that bestows grace on us. And when we look around, and the reason Paul is able to write, may it not be charged to them, because he knows what it is to fail others. He knows what it is to be forgiven. And because of that, he is one quick to forgive those around him. Let me pray for us.